Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum. And if this is your first time here, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This podcast is where we want to get just 1% better every day. How can we chip away at it? What are those small shifts in our actions that we can make on a daily basis, and how do we stay consistent with them to align with our purpose and achieve our goals? I've always been told, find someone who has what you want and do what they do. What does that mean? Mentorship. So whether it's career growth or some sort of progress in your personal life, we discover and share the process by which executive leaders and entrepreneurs within our government, military, and technology industries have cultivated success in their lives and their careers. These are real people that we can actually get to know and you can make a mentor out of. One of those people is our guest today, Rhonda Schrank, the CEO of the USGIF, that's United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation. Rhonda is a former government employee from the National Geospatial Agency, NGA, and she's been leading this team for the past couple of years. You can tell just by her demeanor that she's a traveling yogi. She talks about her yoga practice and what that does for her mindset. She's very zen-like in the way that she speaks. And we go through just a nice little conversation about how she started off as a pro drag racer in her early late teens and early 20s, learning from her father who bought her a drag racing car when she was 16 years old, to training for the Pan Mass Challenge, being the first female CEO of USGIF, positive self-talk, learning from her mentors, being pushed by her mentors, and experiencing an adult relationship with her daughter. So we have a great conversation. I hope you guys all enjoy it. Also, we're going to be at the Sea Air Space Convention next week. That's August 2nd through the 4th. We're going to be capturing a lot of sound bites that we'll put out here on the podcast and all of our medias. So please remember to follow and subscribe wherever you happen to be listening so you don't miss the message. Also, follow us on Instagram. And again, later this month, we're going to have another episode of Let's Talk Tech with NVTC that we host with Northern Virginia Technology Council. That's NVTC. You can find more information and sign up in advance at nvtc.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at Nova Council. This month's episode is going to be with MITRE, so that's something you won't want to miss. We also have plenty of exciting things coming up and a lot of changes. We're going to be powering through some past episodes, so you'll see some higher frequency of episodes coming out here shortly. So we're looking forward to getting all of that out to you. And we've also started Monday Mindset, just to help you guys start the week off right. Make sure you don't miss that. That comes out every Monday. They're short one to three minute podcasts just to get you started for your week. So let's get into the episode. All right, so we're back. We're here in the offices of USGIF with Rhonda Schrank, the CEO. How's it going, Rhonda? Awesome. Thank you for visiting here and having us on the show. Yeah, you've guys got a great office, and I appreciate you taking some time to sit down and chat. Can't wait to hear about all the cool stuff you're doing with USGIF and, and just you as an individual. I heard a rumor that you were a traveling yogi. 
I'm a big traveling yogi. It is my happy place yeah. and it can be in my self-quarantined basement yeah. or it can be all over the world. Have you traveled yeah. with yoga? I have. Well, sort of. So I've done Yogaville, which is in Virginia. So it's not that much travel, but it's pretty far out in Virginia. And yeah, it was a five day silent retreat in Yogaville. And yeah, it was it, it was it was an experience. I didn't realize until like the third day how much noise I make with my mouth. That's unnecessary because the mind didn't shut off. The mind kept speaking and it sounded like me and I can hear my voice in there. And I had the full conversation. I just wasn't using my mouth. Oh, that's so interesting. I've been on a few week long yoga retreats. One of my favorites was in northern France. Okay. Out in the middle of Nowheresville. I'm also a runner. And I found that the closest town was two miles away, up and down hills. And I called it a town because there was a church there. Okay. No commerce. So really we were out in the middle of nowhere, twenty people, men and women. Practicing yoga twice a day, eating together, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and learning more about mindfulness, spirituality, working our bodies, working our minds, and turning off the outside world for a week. However, we did talk and, yeah. and, and okay. quite a bit. Was it a group or how did you organize that or find that? It was a group out of the Washington, D.C. area. One of my favorite instructors of all times. When, when he has a trip, I, I sign up right away and the spots fill up. And he is a master yogi. So not only are we stretching, some people say, oh, yoga, you'll get a good stretch. It's hard. It's, it's yeah. building strength. It's building agility. And that translates into the body. Yeah. I mean, yoga is more about, there's seven yoga sutras, right? And it's way more about just the positions we put our body in. In fact, that's, that's the smallest part of it. It seems like that's just to kind of focus the mind on doing one thing or just to, you know, I find that because my mobility isn't all that great working through that process of getting to being at the step one before you can get to step five to actually be in the position that you need to be in is part of the mental journey to yeah. just, you know, take it easy. And because whenever I'm struggling, that's not yoga. Like all my teachers laugh at me. They're like, you're not doing yoga. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're stretching, but that's not yoga. Oh, I love it. And then carry, it carries through your, your life. Mm -hmm. I had a, a couple of years ago when my daughter was about seven years old. And for whatever reason, I was just giving her a, just a raft of crap mm -hmm. about something. Name it. I, I have really no idea what it was. And she looked up at me with those angelic eyes and said, mommy, have you been to yoga yet today? <laughs> she called you on it. <laughs> and and for her to know, no one told her that. Yeah. However, intuitively, she knew that I showed up differently each day as mom if I had had my my dose yeah. of mindfulness, of exercise, of of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how how intuitive we are, even at a young age, just people in general, right? That was the one thing I noticed about that silent retreat, too, is that we actually communicate in way more ways than the noise we make with our mouth, because there were people that I grabbed, but I made friends there in silence. Yeah. And that translates into your, your life outside of Yogaville and mm -hmm. translates into business, right? And yeah. it make you more mindful of what vibes am I sending out all the time, right? At this yeah. restaurant, at my workplace, as I'm interacting with people. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot about what I want to learn from you today too, and, and talk about it and just continuing to work on that mindset and the, um, 
mindfulness and awareness of who I am and how I show up in the lives of other people and then being able to understand other people a little bit better. So, yeah. But before we get too far into all the fun stuff, what is USGIF? Oh, thank you for asking. United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation. We were formed about 16 years ago at the stand-up of a brand new discipline, the convergence of imagery and mapping. The agency had been called the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, and the title was changed to National Geospatial Intelligence Agency to represent that new discipline, where in the past there was cartography and there was imagery analysis, also known as IMINT. And the convergence of those two disciplines became an amazing capability across the intelligence community, across many disciplines, and even into our personal lives. So... Geospatial intelligence, our foundation was stood up for for three purposes, to help build the community. I helped to create this discipline, and I didn't even understand 16 years ago the depth and the breadth of, of what was to come. So to build the community, to accelerate innovation around this capability, and also to help to build this exciting tradecraft. So through building, bringing the community together and what I call the great triumvirate, industry, academia, and government, all in support of national security. Yeah, so geospatial meaning mapping and satellite imagery and things like that, right? Everything happens somewhere. Yeah. Whether it's on the earth, above the earth, in the, in the sea. Mm-hmm. And... That locational information coming together often helps to tell what's happening and predict what may happen next. Yeah, and you were inside the government first before you started uh, leading this team here, right? Absolutely. I spent more than 20 years with the National Imagery and Mapping Agency that became National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and I loved my time there. I'm a, a lifelong geographer slash, slash geointer, and the role that I have now with USGIF is a dream that I didn't even know I was dreaming of, Yeah, to be able to take our tradecraft and our community to the next level through creating bond and introductions and, and pathways. Yeah. What are some of the things that you guys do at USGIF to kind of help those pathways and, and do that with some of the agencies? So we stood up and initially had this one big event that is now known as the GeoInt symposium, Mm -hmm. annual event that brings together about 4,000 of your closest friends. Sadly, we did not have it in 2020. However, we will this year in October, first time in St. Louis, Missouri. And it's something for everyone. We will have it at the convention center in the downtown. There will be agency directors, four-star generals on the stage talking about their priorities, giving you an opportunity actually to ask questions. It will be digitally and, and provided to them. And then exhibits, an exhibit hall for the ages with 
speakers from the government, from industry, from academia throughout the exhibit floor, and then exhibits to enable you to learn about the newest technology, to talk with organizations. There will be networking events. We are hoping to be as in-person as possible right. this year. Yeah, and then beyond that, we provide touch points throughout the year. So yeah, you create an environment where you would have access to information and people that you may not otherwise have. That just helps the private industry, the government contractors, and also the government communicate with each other. Well, we talked about your yoga practice. What else are you doing in your personal life? You said you're a morning person. You're up early. Or is it you have a routine in the morning? I do. I am a, a super morning person. I force myself to stay in bed until 5 a.m. And then uh, coffee. I'm one of those gals that, that really needs that first cup of coffee. And I hop on my Peloton bike. I was lucky that I happened to already have that for, before COVID. And we have become close friends, especially through a really cold and uh, damp winter. 45 to 90 minutes of cardio almost every day. And it makes me such a healthy person. However, now you can find me on the bike on the weekends, training 20 to up to 40 miles on Saturday and Sunday. I love company. So if, if anyone out there wants to join in the road bike and a hybrid, I in invite the company. Are you training for a race? I, you, do you know that actually does motivate me? So I have been invited to up to Martha's Vineyard this summer, and I hear that it's 60 miles to go around the perimeter. Okay. So I have that planned. And then the Pan Mass Challenge, which will be a challenge. It's two century rides, 100-mile rides back-to-back -back across oh. the state of Massachusetts. Want to go? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Can we do it as a relay? That actually, I hadn't thought of that. That we can might get a be team, fun. Yeah. Get yeah. Like, and do like 50 mile legs. I don't know. I would definitely do it. I, I want to do a, a triathlon sprint and, and start there and then see how I like it. Right. But that's just incorporating another sport because I do the Spartan races and a lot of runs, 10 milers, 10 Ks are usually kind of where I stick. And, and I do it. I've done a couple half marathons every year for the last couple of years. But I want to start incorporating other things. And it's, cycling is fun. It's so important. And, and there's only so much time, right? Yeah. So for me, I, I had thought about getting on the triathlon kick, but it would have cost me yoga because yeah. I run and I bike and I yoga. So yeah. often I, when, when we were traveling back and forth to the office, I had an in-person yoga practice at 6 PM, three nights a week. So, you know, to, to be able to manage the family and cook dinner and, and a full work day and also get your run in and then your bike, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's like all you're doing is working out and managing everything else in between. It's, it, it is a lot. When you were at NGA or even before that, were you more technical in your experience and the things you were doing? So I started off that way, right? Yeah. Before I went to the government, before I was recruited to the government yeah. through friends, I was a programmer. Yeah. And I was a programmer on the mapping side and brought in to be an imagery analyst. And I loved it. Did you? I loved it. There, there's just something about when, and when I came in, I was like, you know, I can do this programming. And I was hired to do the imagery side. And those two pieces really hadn't converged at the mm. point of my entry. And I was like, these things really work well together. And not everybody 
was drinking the the Kool-Aid yet. So it it took a little while for those cultures to come together and to understand the potential, The, the, the visualizations of imagery and maps partnered with spreadsheets and and then databases of information. So I loved that. Around what year was that? Was it in like the mid-90s more or less? Yeah. Yeah, so the internet was just now coming around. So I bet that had a lot to do with the idea that, hey, we can create databases and share this information and do things with it in a way that we've never done before. Like it probably was an evolution of of that technology using the internet as well, right? Absolutely. And so it's interesting. We did everything... Until COVID, not everything, we did a lot on the classifum networks. Yeah. And it was really hard to be outside of a government building and communicate in right. or back and forth. The government folks leave their, their phones, their devices in their vehicle or at home or in a locker at the, the front for, for some buildings. That was the beginning and it stayed, it, while our capabilities increased over time, it stayed very compartmented. And I know I've jumped ahead, but it's so exciting with what's happened with so many government employees all of a sudden working from home mm. and being able to explore being what they can do at an unclassified level. So while, you know, you said mid nineties and I was like, oh yeah, we, we started coming up to speed with computers. We had the Y2K scare. We were all afraid, you know, what's going to happen January. Are are we still, the world's still going to exist. What's going to happen. And now here we are exploring what work can and should be done in the open and on the unclassified network. Mm -hmm. Did you see yourself as being in leadership or was that an aspiration of yours? I've had a a long line of best jobs ever. Yeah. And and I think one of the the pivotal points, I was working on a a technically focused team and and we were trying to figure out how to build a GIS database around um, a significant city. And I got the call from the division chief and he brought me in and said, hey, We've got a new job for you. We want you to go be the executive officer for the director of the agency. And as my little girl that we were talking about earlier would have um, said, my eyes got water. Yeah. And I said, oh, what did I do wrong? You're sending me away. I was very upset. And uh, he said, well, you should go home and think about it. So I came back the next day and said, do I have to? Because this is my favorite job I've ever had. How old were you at this point? 37. Oh, so it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I thought maybe Uh, you were younger and you were kind of perceiving it as being like, you know, something bad. I was perceiving it as being something bad and it was fear of unknown. I was a technical person. I was a programmer. Yeah. So I was told that I could say no if I wanted to, but that they would like me to do it. It was a one year assignment. And wow. I had the opportunity to be that proverbial fly on the wall and see how the sausage is made and and take the notes. And and from time to time, you'd say, hey, Rhonda, what do you think about this? Or how do you think that went? And I learned to think about what I was going to say because it could affect people. He might take it as advice and enact it, which didn't work out well for me only one time. And that's when I started seeing 
the 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 leadership team yeah. as people and not people up in these glass houses. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, I could do that. Mm. And I started even allowing myself to think maybe even better. Yeah. You kind of gave yourself permission to, to be in that room and to be a part of that team and see yourself as you can't be what you can't see. So I don't know. It sounds like if you didn't have any access to that, you wouldn't have, you may not have had that, that thought wouldn't have occurred to you. I love that. You can't be what you can't see. And, and even the job I have now, right? Yeah. No one has had this before me that looks like me. I am the first female to be the full-time CEO. We had an interim CEO last summer that was a female and, and, and trendsetter. Yeah. So for me, that was the evolution. And following that, I started to more actively raise my hand for new opportunities and even ones that scared me. I had been mentored, right? So we sometimes, you know, we talk about mentors and advocates. Yeah, that's a big thing to talk that, about. That boss that, that did that for me, did that for me, not to yeah. me, for me. So right. important. Not only did he serve as a mentor, but at that point in my career, he was being an advocate. Mm. He also sat me down and said, hey, Rhonda, when you go over and do that, you need to only be there for 12 to 18 months. You need to have an end date have a plan. to where you get back to operations. Or you can get lost in that world mm. as being a support person. And he said, I look at you and you need to have a seat at the table, not behind the table for an extended period of time. That was important. Yeah. And when I did decide, right, that, okay, it's time to to take the next step. And I used my network to figure out, okay, what would be scary? What might be a next step? I had to go into the director and talk to him about it. And he was, he was slightly upset. However, I think it's time for me to spread my wings and take all of the things that I've learned from you and, and from the access and to proliferate it in, in a work group, in a smaller work group, and to start, continue my journey and my path. It sounds like you learned how to lean into fear and then you started to practice that. Like you found something that intimidated you or scared you or was uncomfortable in some sort of way and leaned into it and did it anyway. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So I, you know, we talk about fears and one of the the fears for me that I, I have still have to battle back is the fear of not being the best or one of the best. Mm. I grew up playing group sports yeah. with parents that, that were very supportive and we would practice and practice and practice. So I realized over time, per- professionally and personally, if there was something that I hadn't practiced for a while, hadn't swung a golf club for a while, hadn't played volleyball for a while, and there was a pickup game, I might sit it out if I felt like I wasn't good enough. At work, there were promotions that I passed up as far as applying for it, right? Yeah. When I wasn't asked, I didn't apply because I didn't feel like I could check all of the boxes a hundred percent. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Where does that come from? I think it starts early yeah. and, and, you know, the gender roles that were in place when I was growing up and, and maybe even you, they're evolving and, and we're encouraging 
females and males to have an open mind, right? If you want to do something that was traditionally the other gender role, it's okay. So I hope that that's evolving. And it goes back to what you said. If you can't see it, you you can't imagine it. How old is that seven-year-old now? She's 21. She's in college. She's going to college from home. Yeah. And it's been an amazing opportunity for us to grow as individuals together instead of mom and and constantly daughter. And she teaches me. I am so grateful for that opportunity to spend this COVID time with her, learning about her as an adult. It it changes. How do you think her seeing you in the position that you're in and doing the things that you've done throughout your career as she's grown up has affected her outlook on what's possible for her? Oh, I love that question. Thank you for asking that. So my daughter was, I'll backtrack a little bit, a Girl Scout. She started when she was six years old. The troop leader and I have been great friends through the years. The troop leader is the mom of five children. Her oldest is 21. She teaches piano lessons. She was a stay-at-home, working really hard mom. I have always been the professional mom and the two of us have really leaned into showing our children and and that troop that we respect and advocate for many routes, that there are many ways to be successful in life. And success isn't measured by your bank account, the car you drive, the company that you work for. It's what's in your heart and what's fulfilling to you. So for my daughter and also her daughter, they see me in, you know, coming to Girl Scout practice in my suit, in my dress, in my heels. And they see her name was Miss Becky is what we called her. <laughs> also being in a more casual environment, but that the respect the two of us had for each other and the admiration to make it okay yeah. for these young women growing up to see themselves in a variety of roles. Because I would never want my daughter to think the only right path would be to follow what I'm doing. Going back to where you started, yeah, she she can see that happening. Yeah. And I also want them to know that it doesn't have, have to be my path to fulfill what's right in their hearts and, and their lives. Is there a reading practice or any kind of journaling or anything like that that goes into your daily routine? I have often fallen asleep a few times with my face just planted right in the book. <laughs> what, what kind of stuff do you like to read? I like to read nonfiction. And, and I'm just going to put it right out there. I've spent so many years in a government position where I was reading intelligence and, and to synthesize, formulate, understand the information in support of national security, that it's it back to being like in college. Remember when your semesters ended and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not reading a nonfiction book for you know, the the next few weeks. Sometimes I find a book here or there, or I have someone gift me a book 
And and that's the best because then I know I have to read it. That happened this fall. There's a book, She Proclaims by Jennifer Palmieri. Loved it. And, I, and I've gifted it now to a couple of female colleagues that because I liked it so much. And it talks about she's proclaiming our uh, Declaration of Independence from a Man's World. And it talks about some of the things that you and I have talked, touched on about those written and more importantly, unwritten rules, right? The, uh, and those rules in the business place were by and large written by men or, or unwritten by men for a man's world. So we talk about fitting in. We talk about work social ner- norms. One of them for me is crying. Well, who says you can't cry at work, right? That's an emotion. Over time, it's been fine to show some emotion, anger, anxiety, happiness. But by and large, it's not a, a male trait to cry. So that became taboo. One of my heroes, Sue Gordon, former principal deputy director of national intelligence, former deputy director of NGA. She's cried on our stage many times. She has become overwhelmed with empathy, energy, gratitude when talking to the USGIF audience and openly weeps and and doesn't try to hide it. For me, that's empowering. Yeah, I mean, it's a sign of passion too, right? Because yeah. you actually believe in what you're doing. Can you look back at any time, whether it was personal or, or professional, and think back to like a jumping off point somewhere where like you maybe you thought you couldn't keep doing what you're doing, but you were uncertain about what had to happen next? Yeah, I've had that in lots of jobs. I've had that in my professional and personal life where you just, you feel like, oh my God, I just, I can't go on. And you know, the, the Q word like pops up into your mind. I want to quit. Oh, Oh, I know your, your face was like, what the heck is the Q word? I want to quit. However, I don't have that. Right. And, and maybe with the yoga, we didn't talked about it, but the self-talk for me, I can, I will, I am those I am statements. Yeah. I mean, those are huge. I can. Do you you journal them out or how do you practice that? Is that something that you do you have a practice around? I am statements and building that muscle memory and synapses around those. I've learned when I I come to that, that edge to take a break, Mm. to take a walk, get some fresh air, go outside of the building, whatever building that might be, step away. And for me, those affirmations combined with fresh air and and a little bit of walking often help me refocus and double down. And then for me, it's all right, you can make it one more day, right? Making little deals with myself. Okay. Now you can make it one more day. And before I know it, things start to look a little clearer. Yeah. I think staying present is, is huge because that fear of uncertainty, usually when I'm when I'm thinking of uncertainty and I'm in fear of, of the future, I'm like way far down the road. It's like, you know, it's no longer, it's no longer Tuesday, you know, it's like three years from now and everything's on fire, but none of those things are real. I mean, well, they're real because I feel them. They haven't happened yet and they don't have to, but if I stay present and do things like what you said, like take a breath, pause, you know, come back to it. It allows, that allows you to keep going. 
are you a goal setter, like a formal kind of goal setter? Like you write things down. I kind of feel like you might be that kind of person. I am a goal setter and I'm a list maker. Yeah. I am that list maker that if I do something and it wasn't on my list, I write it down and cross it off. And and it's like we were talking about with our, our exercising. I like having something to work towards. Right. I, I like the carrot that this is coming up and, and I like to do that in, in the workplace. Mm. We have a, an event coming up in a few weeks and I've started a new internal goal setting that if we have so many people attend our event and we have so many of the other revenue goals hit, we have a staff stand down day. That's something fun. It's something to work towards. And if we don't hit those goals, there's nothing punitive. We, we move on. So yeah, I, I love goals. You can't hit a target you're not aiming for. And I like what you said that if we don't hit it, we made this up. Like, it's not like the company isn't going out of business. Like the foundation isn't going to fold that, you know, there's a, there's a book out there, infinite games by Simon Sinek. Oh, I love him. Yep. Yeah. And, and he wrote that book following his study of another book called finite and infinite games uh, written by a theologian back in the eighties. And it was all about these little games that we play with ourselves. And it could be something as simple. If I make this basket, like I ball up this piece of paper and throw it into the trash can, then this good thing will happen. If I could control the outcome of situations with paper and a trash can, I'd be a billionaire by now. And same thing within companies, we arbitrarily set up sales goals and revenue goals based on some metric. But if we don't hit them, it doesn't mean that the company is going out of business or that we are somehow no longer a great company. We didn't fail. We just didn't hit that particular number. It's still profitable. So it's, yeah, it's just interesting to know, like, and reading that helped me understand like how many times I do that throughout the day with myself. Right. And a lot of it is selfishness and trying to control outcomes really, or try to feel like I have more control over an outcome than I actually do because it makes me and my little tiny feelings feel better. Like, okay, you know, I did it. And I think a lot of that is just take the action and and create the momentum. Consistency seems to be a little bit more important. Are you ever held back when you, when you have that and and the the fears that we've talked about from taking action? All the time. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it gets better. The more I'm aware of it and the more I can understand it. And in the past, yeah, it's held me back. It stopped me from the fear of the unknown. It stopped me from even trying certain things. I just have to continue to take the actions and be open-minded to wherever it goes. Saying yes is a big deal for me. Saying yes is a big deal. It's a really big deal. So Terry Bush is a a former colleague of mine, and there's a couple of them in the intelligence community. The one I'm talking about worked for CIA. He had several jobs there, and then he became a coach afterwards. He and I worked together on a leadership program for NEMA, NGA, a few years ago. And we're talking about, you and I talking about motivational. So he had the manager's magic formula that I loved. So the magic formula was TP plus HM equals EP. TP TP plus HM equals EP? Yeah, have you heard of that? No, it's not toilet paper. (laughs) It's not. So talented people. Okay. Plus highly motivated. Okay. Equals exceptional performance. I like this. Yeah. So he says that 
it's a formula, if you can make it work to its fullest, is likely to produce extraordinary outcomes. But making it work is hard, right? So take any workplace and you talk about your team. You usually inherit a lot of skill sets on your team. But how do you evaluate that team and make the best of the hand that you're dealt and then motivate that team? Find out about your team. What are their skills? What are their aspirations? A lot of times we forget to talk to people about their aspirations. In order to bring those two things together, to get that exceptional performance. The little eight-year-old boy inside me popped up and was like, talented people, you don't have any talents. Like, you're highly motivated, but you don't know how to do anything. How do you make sure that the people recognize their own talents? It's hard. And and the, the motivation is different by person, mm-hmm. right? There's not one secret recipe that applies to all. We're all different. There are things that motivate you and there are things that motivate me. And some of them may be the same and some of them may be different. Yeah. So it's actually, it's getting in there and, and recognizing the human factor and you and I sitting down and saying, Hey, you know, what, what are you thinking about? What would be your, your dream job? And not all people will know what that is. I didn't, right? So many times. And creating and fostering an environment where we aren't afraid to, to dream and to think about it. And then creating an environment where we know what the end game is. So decades ago, right, we we've heard people talk about that the the janitor at NASA knew that it was his job to put a person or a man on the moon because of what he was doing enabled the, the, the clean workplace and to order to enable the full chain of events to happen. Mm-hmm. For me, that's an effective workplace where we all know, right, for my team, that the big key words are in support of national security, in support of national security to, to help keep our world safe. And then there are a whole bunch of things that, that are underlying in that. There's marketing, there's the, the academic piece, there are the, the digital production that, that you're all too familiar with. And all of that is essential to accomplishing our mission. When you were growing up, Right. Were you a technical kid? Did you want to be a government employee? Did you want to be an intelligence? Yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland and I thought that I wanted to be a linguist at NSA because that was nearby and I knew about it and I liked languages and then I was talented in that area. And I also wanted to be a race car driver. They're, what, they're, they're similar. Yeah. Were you around race cars? Where did that come from? Yeah, I was around race cars. My my father was a race car driver and all the the guys in town had the, the bromance with my dad. In Maryland? In Maryland. He was a, a drag racer. And, and I have to tell you, he was almost 80 and he still drag races with my brothers. Like at, what is it, Maryland Raceway down in, in Waldorf, Crofton? Maryland International Raceway, Capital Raceway, 7580. Those were the the main tracks. And I went with them. I was the oldest of 
and I still am the oldest of four children, only girl. Okay. So daddy took me along and I would, I was always by his side. There was one female predominant drag racer in the late seventies, Shirley Muldowney. And so I could see myself right in that role. I, I loved that. And when I was 16, daddy got me a race car. Uh, what kind of race car was it? It was a front engine dragster. And he liked that open format, that open car format, because he had control issues and he liked being able to reach in and turn my car off if he wanted to, or to be able to get to me, to access me. And I was one of the only women in the early eighties drag racing. And I, I did it for a few years with really? him. It was so much fun. And I also ended up working for the government and not the linguist side, the imagery side. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. Life is a series of opportunities. I, I don't go to the racetrack anymore. I sometimes watch it. It was interesting. I have three brothers now that have fallen in and, and race with my papa, but yeah, it's that's interesting. You you just, you just sort of pulled that out that I could see it. So yeah. I reached towards things that I knew of that might yeah. be possible. And that one, that racing one, would have been hard because there weren't many, but I still felt like it was achievable. Yeah, but you were around it. Right? I you, was around it. You understood it in a different way. And I think that's that's huge. I think it's yeah. also the nurturing environment. So I could see it, but it was also parents, not just a parent, that said, you can do anything you put your mind to. You have to want it. Mm -hmm. No one's going to hand it to you. That's another part of it. And I try to carry that through in all that I do to encourage others. I'm the, if you could see me when we have our, our events, our USGIF events, and especially now that I'm not in the front um, row going, yeah, you're like cheering the person on. I'm texting them, way to go. You're crushing it. I think that's important. I want someone when they think that they are at that edge and they can't go one more step forward to, to hear my voice saying, don't give up. You can do it. I believe in you and to feel that positive energy, the nonverbal energy yeah. as well. And gosh, you know, if, if you say, how do you want someone to remember you, Rhonda? That's what I hope to be able to achieve. I don't think I'm quite there yet. Right. Like like you. Right. We've talked a little bit about some self-doubt. I feel like I'm still a work in progress and I strive each day to get a little bit better and to be worthy of not only the the formal position that I have, but the informal positions that I have all across my professional and personal life. You know, it's always hard with these episodes, right? It's going to be hard to kind of pick the best parts of this because it was all the best parts, but I appreciate you spending some time and chatting with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope you'll invite us back again. Yeah. This has been really fun. I can't believe that time went by so fast. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.